This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. In the studio with me now is Dr. Lyndon, our climatologist. How are you going, girl? Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm well. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, well, I'm a, my voice is a little scratchy, but I'm okay. And Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Yeah. How beautiful is this weekend, the weather? I know. Speaking so of lovely. climatology. Mm. Liv's mm-hmm. doing our Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. She's the only one in the room, I think, who's not sick. Um, <laughs> <coughs> well, maybe she'll be sick by the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> It's a small room, but uh, no, we're spreading some stuff around. Lyndon, you're not sick, though, are you? You're okay. I'm on the tail end. On the, on the tail, tail end, end. yes. Yeah, the sun okay. has helped me recover, I think. Yeah. Anyway, folks, we've got an hour of science for you today. We've got some really special guests coming in. They're all part of the Pint of Science program, which we're going to learn a lot more about in about 15 minutes. But first of all, we're going to start off with some news. So, Dr. Lyndon, what have you got to excite us? Well, Shane... A few of us might have woken up this morning thinking, all right, it's time to go, (laughs) time to leave, maybe looking into some New Zealand passports or maybe even further afield. But research from published in Nature Geoscience this week suggests that the moon is not the stable option that we thought it could be <laughs> as a place to escape. Well, that's, that's a worry because NASA have just announced that they will put the first woman on the moon by 2024. Exactly, exactly. So this study is from NASA and uh, researchers from the Smithsonian and universities in the US and Canada, and they have found or they believe that the moon is actually tectonic, could be tectonically active. Now, I'm a bit stressed about talking about this story because, you know, mm. Shane's a space guy. I don't know a lot about space. But this story really fascinated me because we know that the moon has quakes, right? It has – it's uh, we have – it shakes, right? The surface yeah. of the moon, moon shakes. Moon quakes. moon quakes. There's also Mars yeah. quakes and Venus quakes and all sorts of different quakes. But we know that there are moon quakes because – during the Apollo missions, the Apollo astronauts brought up seismometers. They put four or five seismometers on the surface of the moon and they measured quite a number of quakes from the late 60s to the mid-1970s, which is pretty cool. They measured 28, I think it was, shallow moon quakes. So these are quakes that happened near the surface of the moon over that period, right? So we knew that they happened, but it wasn't quite clear where they were happening, right? Where this sort of source of friction was, like our earthquakes, where it's from tectonic plates crashing together or moving apart, they weren't quite sure where that was happening. So this new study has done a couple of different things with those old pieces of information and some new pieces of information. Shane's got a question. No, no, I'm oh, excited. You're excited. Good. Well, that stuff's been sitting around there for 50 years. That's right. That's Minus right. Minus a month. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Minus a month. I know. It'll be yeah. the 50th anniversary in July. So the first thing they did was they used the sparse sort of pieces of data that they had from the Apollo size, size meter, seismological information, and they used an algorithm that could take not a lot of information and get a bit of a cloud map of the likely locations, right? It was hard to pinpoint exactly, but they could use this algorithm, this complex algorithm, to pinpoint the regions where they thought Mm. the earthquake or the moonquakes might have uh, been originating, right? And then they overlaid that information with these really high-resolution photos of the surface of the moon from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So this Mm. is a satellite that's been orbiting the moon since about 2010, I think, taking super high-res photos, like one to two metres per pixel of these images, right? And these photos can show the locations of fault lines or different 
escarpments, different kind of uh, valleys and cliffs and these sorts of things on the moon's surface. So they could overlay those two pieces of information. And they found that of these 28 moon quakes that were identified by the Apollo data set, eight of them occurred within 30 kilometres of these fault lines that they could identify in these high-resolution photos. That doesn't sound like a lot, but... Statistics says that it's, you know, slightly more average than if it had just happened at random. So mm. they're kind of thinking, oh, that might be a bit of a connection there between these fault <coughs> sort of lines that have identified in the photos and this data set. And they also found that of those eight, six of them occurred when the moon was at its furthest distance apart from the Earth. Okay. So now we've got this idea that these quakes are occurring, A, because the moon is cooling and it's kind of shrinking very, very slightly and very, very slowly as it cools, and also these tidal forces between the Earth and the moon. So this, I mean, I love this story because it, A, like you say, we're thinking about putting people back on the moon as a yep. stepping stone to Mars and how these events occur is going to be a factor when it comes to planning. Well, well, it's actually super important with regards to any sort of permanent presence on the moon because that's likely to be underground. Mm. Yeah, like right. Like, it's quite likely that you... Because of the, the problems with radiation and so forth, because the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, mm. you're actually better to build things, if you can, drill them underground yeah. mm. and actually have, you know, subterranean-type, um, you know, work areas and go. so forth. So, the, you know, if there's moonquakes going on. The, the other fascinating part about it is the same reconnaissance orbiter, of course, has taken photographs of the tracks made by the um, little buggies that the Apollo people, you know, were mm. driving around. Yeah. And so however, however strong these earthquakes are, they haven't eroded those tracks, which mm. you would think might have happened if they were really strong. Yeah. But in 50 years, that hasn't occurred. So you wonder what sort of, you know, movement the almost said earth but i have to say moon, moon quakes yeah um, what what movement the moon actually would have as well, they, a material they measured the moon quakes they measured one up to five on the richter scale yeah, which, which is sort is of a significant significant yeah. quake mm. um and they also happen for a lot longer i've read mm. that these quakes mm. can go on the shaking can happen for about an hour because of the way that the geology works <laughs> but there was another study this week looking at from um chinese scientists that found on the dark side of the moon evidence of maybe mantle rock Mm, yeah, from near the, the surface. Yeah. Near the surface. Yeah. So now we're just sort of un- understanding more and more about what's mm. happening underneath the Which moon. Which could, could be impact. You know, it could be impacts causing that. You know, you, you hit something hard enough and you... you know, that, that, yeah, that's, true. That's the reason there are rocks from Mars on Earth. You know, because impacts on Mars threw up so much material and some of that material ended up in, in our orbit and ended up on, you know, there's bits of Martian meteorite on, mm. on this yeah, planet. Wow. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. It is, oh, very cool. Very yeah. cool. So not not a stable option, though, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, well, probably it might be more stable than being on Earth, though. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on where you live. So. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. Right. Dr. Lauren, what do you got? Yeah, so look, I... I oh, hang on, you're going to... No, I'm not going to like this story, am I? Why are you not going to like this story? Is this to do with spiders? It is to do with spiders. <laughs> I'm just going to... I'll just leave the studio for a few minutes while you do but it. But it's about pretty spiders and they're the jumping spiders, so you've got to like them, so, surely. Hang on, hang on. The first bit I'm okay with, the second bit I'm not too. <laughs> Small, though, jumping spiders. They are small. Not jumping oh, okay. tarantulas. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And they're beautiful. So what we're talking about um, are the peacock spiders. So if anyone hasn't seen them before, do Google it. They are absolutely spectacular. So they are basically incredibly brightly coloured spiders. Um, and, yeah, like I said, the, unfortunately they do jump, which is a little scary for us people that don't like spiders. Um, but the reason that they jump around is, is for mating. So they're trying to attract the attention of, of female spiders. 
And one of the things that makes them very interesting is that they're colour. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I just, you know, I just Google them. You Google them. They're beautiful. Yeah, they're very pretty. They're actually. All so different colours. They are. They yeah. are. And what you'll notice, Dr. Shane, when you look at it, is this colours look absolutely so striking. Um, they're almost glowing colours. Mm. And um, what the study that's come out this week is looking at is why those colours look so bright. And the reason that the colours look so bright is actually because of the black spots that are next to them. So the reason that we see colour is because we see wavelengths of light reflected back off objects. And so there are materials that are called uh, super black and they are structural materials that are basically made so that they absorb so much of the light that only like 0.5% is actually reflected yeah. back. Those those objects don't look black. They look um, deep. They do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think I heard a beautiful description of them once. And they, they were talking about if you have black hair, for example, someone's got black hair, it looks glossy. You yeah. can sort of get those reflections back off yeah. it. But a super black object well, you don't get that yeah. you don't get any of those specular reflections yeah. you don't get like any highlights it's just exactly yeah. it looks yeah. like nothing is yeah. there. Wait, do these things exist in the world or are they in labs only this super both both, both. Yeah. yeah so so obviously the spiders are an example um there's things like moths eyes uh, are super mm. black so they are this have sort of similar structural components um but the, obviously the the man-made version is of course solar panels so solar panels again use some of these techniques to have this really really high absorption material Mm. so that we can make electricity from them. Um, but the study that came out this week is very interesting because they've actually looked at these spiders um, in incredibly high resolution using scanning electron microscopes um, and hyperspectral imaging, which allows you to look at colours in, in very fine detail. And what they found is that these super black patches actually are made up of these tiny little bumps that they're calling micro lenses. And it's incredibly clever because basically what those bumps do is that they lie over the top of the melanin pigment. So that's the pigment that absorbs, you know, it's the black color basically that absorbs most of the light. But the little bumps then help to scatter any remaining light that might be coming back out. It helps to, um, yeah, d- decrease the surface reflectance. And so it basically helps that spot to absorb every bit of light right. that it can. Um, the really cool thing that they found is that, you know, the, the shapes of these micro lenses are quite unique. They're sort of ellipsoid in shape. And so what they're actually saying is it could be useful for man-made mm. objects. So, you know, we might be able to model some of our materials on these spiders. Yeah, yeah. And is that what they set out to find? Or were they trying to figure out a bit more of how or why evolutionarily the brightness and the darkness were contrasting so strongly in the spiders? Bit of both, bit of both. So there's a lot of interest in this super black because they are in certain animals. So birds of paradise are another example that, again, are really beautifully coloured. And, again, they look so good to us because of these black patches in between their colours. But, yeah, it definitely has a lot of uh, correlations with man-made materials. And so Mm. engineers are obviously going to be quite interested in this. Yeah, it's quite interesting if you ever play around with, like, if you get a box and the box only has a single hole in it, and you make sure, you know, size of a 20-cent piece mm. or something, and you make sure the inside of the box is all black, painted black, mm-hmm. that that hole will look blacker yeah. than black. Yep. It, it's the same thing because it's absorbing the box itself is absorbing all the radiation that hits it. Yeah, So yeah. it's quite, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different look. It is. It look. really yeah. is. And it's, it's, it's interesting because, yeah, it's something you don't think of. You, you look at the, them and go, they're really colourful. Mm. The colours must be brighter. And you don't think about the fact that it's actually just that the yeah. black is blacker. Yeah. And, look, I, I take my hat off to you, Dr. Lauren, because you, uh, you're obviously wearing black today, so people <laughs> around you look brighter. That's it. I is do that on right? purpose. Totally so on purpose. So if you see her on the street, folks, stand near her, you'll look brighter. <laughs> 
That's what she does. Uh, okay. <laughs> On that note, um, there's some interesting work coming out of the Indiana University of Med- um, Medical School where one of the things I wasn't aware of, but often when you get infections, especially in hospitals around surgical sites and so forth, you get these biofilms forming. Mm. And so it's not just, you know, bacteria everywhere. They form these films. And the way they form these films is by communicating um, electrically with themselves so and that's you know allows it to join up and you know it's like a film of glad wrap in a way you know kind of mm. it, it creates a surface that is very very hard to deal with with antibiotics mm-hmm. and it's one of the reasons you get all these any um sort of antibiotics not working in these resistant um so the bacteria you get in hospitals and there are some studies that believe that in fact the the national institute of health in the u.s believes that some 80 percent um their estimates 80 percent of these resistant um, bacterial infections in hospitals are due to these biofilms. Now, other other sort of players around, um, you know, the Center for Disease Control in the US, they think it's close to the 65. But either way, you know, even if whether at the top of the, or the bottom end of that, mm. it's a pretty large percentage of these dangerous infections being caused by these biofilms. So this new group from the University School, um, Indiana University School of Medicine, they've actually come up with this new dressing, which is really unusual. And what it does is it uses the chemicals in the body, so the chemicals that you just find on the skin, Skin to actually apply its own electric field. So it uses the chemicals that we normally excrete and it then converts those into about one volt. So not a, you're not going to feel a shock, mm. but the, the bacterial biofilm will feel a... Well, it will be distorted in such a way that it can no longer grow and it will start pulling itself apart. And so this is really interesting because if you think about it, this is a mechanical response, a mechanical way or electrical way, if you like, to deal with these biofilms, not a, a use of antibiotics. Because mm. the antibiotics are failing here. They're not, you know, in many cases, they're not working. And some people die of these infections. Mm. But this, this version of attacking the biofilm with this new type of dressing that uses electricity to attack the biofilm instead of chemicals is, is quite interesting genius and what they're hoping is um it's working really really well and it's already gone through a range of clinical trials so it's in use but what they're hoping is down the track you might even be able to make things like you know hospital bedding and so forth out of this same material so that the biofilms just never start in the first place Mm -hmm. in addition to dressings and so forth used so it's a really interesting application that i think um it's great The, the more we look at these sorts of scenarios the more i think mechanical and electrical and other sort of more physical sciences responses to some of these bacterial infections is, is going to be the way they go because the the antibiotics are just not there like mm. we just don't have that option does it have to be quite targeted this sort of small electrical dressing to not also disrupt <clears throat> what's going on naturally in our body for good well i think i think the thing is there is that um it's on the surface so there's this film this surface that is there um that you're attacking directly and it's a low enough voltage that you know you you don't feel i mean you, you know you, you feel voltages when you touch various things even if you walk along the carpet you might feel a little zap it doesn't really cause any problems um and this is just enough to disrupt the biofilm's ability to form a film. But so. this is not a dressing that needs to be plugged in or anything oh, like no, that. Oh, no, no. As I say, it uses the body's own chemicals. Wow. So it's got some chemicals in it, of course, mm. and it adds your chemicals to those chemicals and it produces a reaction that gives you a volt. Well, just one yeah. volt. It doesn't have to be a lot, but it's enough to disrupt the biofilm. It's incredibly so. clever. There you go. Mm. Anyway, cool stuff. Um, now, just before we go to the break, folks, we do have a giveaway today, and Liv's going to be uh, taking your many, many calls. Um, we have one double pass to the 
OKEG OK Wavelength 2 as part of the Progress Festival. That's going to be on Saturday, May 25th at 7.30 at the Ian Potter Centre for the Performing Arts at Monash University in Clayton. Um, we'll have your names at the box office if you get one of these tickets. Um, audiovisual artist OKEG OK present Wavelength 2, an ambient techno performance combining machinery, water and sound. They create a stunning performance that synchronises their original live music to machine-driven water droplets that reveal hypnotic geometric projections. Mm. It sounds pretty funky. It sounds really cool. I mean, depending on what you drink or you know, ingest <laughs> before the show, it could be really quite something. So anyway, if, you, if you're a subscriber and you'd like a double pass to that, uh, give us a call now while we take a break, and Liv will um, get your calls. We're going to listen to some music, and we'll be back with our first guest for today in the moment. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, welcome back, everybody. It is Triple uh, A you're listening to. It's a science program. And you may have just heard that uh, sponsorship announcement from Triple R for the Pint of Science, which is uh, coming up. And we have uh, three guests today to talk about this. Our first one is Dr. Georgia Atkins Smith. She's a cell biologist at the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science and the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Georgia, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And you've been on before a long time ago, haven't you? Yeah, back in 2000. 2015. 2015. Yeah, so a few years ago now. about 700 guests ago or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I knew I remembered you. Uh, no, I'm not good at remembering people <laughs> that were on last week. But uh, now we might start talking a bit about pine of science. I want to get. I want to talk a little bit about your research because it's interesting. But um, first of all, what is pine of science? I mean, it sounds like some sort of beer thing. Yep. So basically, the name has it. So pine of science <laughs> is an international event, and it aims to bring science from the lab to the general members of the public in a fun and engaging kind of environment at the pub where we can all have a social interaction and have a few drinks. Okay. And, I mean, what sort of presentations or, you know, talks and so forth are, are given? Like, what, what, what do they look like? So the night is generally structured with two or three scientists, and these mm-hmm. can be any form of scientist. So we have uh, six different themes, um, atoms and galaxies, my body, um, the environment, and we have, um, like, early early researchers, so PhD students and postdocs and, like, professors. So we have quite a diverse range of speakers. And each night we have two to three speakers and um, the night is quite engaging. So there's an MC who is quite entertaining, there's trivia, so it's quite, like, engaging, interactive and hopefully fun night. So if people are going to come along, Georgia, should they be bringing their safety glasses is it sort of you know oh. doing some science in the pub or did you have to get the ethics approval was a bit complex for that it, we tried we tried really hard <laughs> um but unfortunately there will be no hands-on demonstrations but hopefully we have presentations like big um powerpoints and stuff so hopefully most of the speakers will be quite um descriptive with their with their research so you can get a really good idea of what really goes on behind those closed doors of the labs and how did you choose these people because one of the things i i you know, I could handle a five-minute talk from a really bad presenter. I, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a fork to poke my own eye out if it's like 40 <laughs> minutes of your typical science presentation, to be frank. So how did you choose? Because these people are going to have to be really good. So how, how did you they choose are. these particular people to give these talks? So we Dr. Have, Linden's one of them, right? She is. <laughs> Smack under the radar. The pressure is on. <laughs> so we have a, a huge committee here in Melbourne. So yep. I'm a part of the, the Melbourne committee, and there's nearly over 30 volunteers, and we've had... Um, um, abstracts basically all these different scientists have put in submissions and we've had to sit down and go through the applications and look for things not only about their research but whereabouts in their career are they mm. what kind of field are they in and have they had any um, outreach or communications experience to try and get like the best of the best and you chose Lynn? 
Yeah, surprisingly. <laughs> no, no. She, I'm you, sure she's going to be fantastic. What are you going to talk about? Are you going to talk about climate? I'm going to talk about the really heavy rainfall events in oh, the right. past. Melbourne's wettest days in the 1800s and what that can tell us about climate change. Yeah, she's a big fan of the history of this one. Big fan. I like that. Kind like of that. history, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. Now, are you giving any of the presentations yourself, Georgia? Yes, so I'm speaking on Wednesday night yep. in Brunswick at the Spotted Mallard. Mm-hmm. So our session is called The Science of Survival. Okay. So it's myself and um, Dr. Carly Quinn, and she's talking about ageing, and I'm talking about more like death and the cells within our body that die and how that's interesting and why we should understand that. Ageing and death are really exciting and happy stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone will be thrilled. Yeah. There will be beer there, though, so you can sort of numb yourself a little bit. <laughs> to help, that, help that dying process along. <laughs> that's it. We, we neither endorse nor approve of <laughs> Lauren's comments with regards to alcohol consumption. Um, in, in terms of... So you work on cell death. So this is something that's that's interesting to me. So can I ask you uh, like a more basic question about that? Why do our cells actually die? I mean, compared to other animals, like, you know, in some jellyfish and that, where they're immortal. Like, why do our cells die? I think the human body is such a complex um, organism or entire body. And we just, there's so many different things that we need to regulate and control. And we have so many different types of cells. And many of our cells will grow and divide and generate new cells. Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure that if there's any um, indication of damage or errors occurring in our cells that they need to be quickly removed and cleared away before they can induce any damage. Okay. And it's because of that complex pathway and then the need for to have a, such a healthy and like regulated body that if there's any cell, any um, damage occurring that our body will induce that cell suicide to get rid of those damaging cells before they can inflict any damage on the human do, body. Do all of our cells have a predetermined time limit? Like all of them or are there some that... I know cancer cells don't. Is that yes. Right? Yeah. So, but, in some circumstances. Yeah, in some yeah. circumstances. But, but other other than that, do all of our cells? Not have all, a, not all, but some. So, I, I'm not, not my specialty is is not in cardiovascular or neuro mm. neurological cells. But in those particular cases, especially in our heart cells, their intrinsic cell death clock is very very different to what we see in like a monocyte setting. Right. So, m- most of my research focuses on monocytes, so one of the key white blood cells, mm-hmm. and we know that they have quite a short time span. So that's probably in, in the days. Wow. And so they grow, they divide, they differentiate, they serve their function and they can die and just get that homeostatic regulation going so there's never any chance to have defective or um, harmful cells within the body. Mm. I've got one. And more questions on that in a moment, but first of all, I'm getting the general stuff out of the way because I, I, mm. you know, it's rare that we get a cell death person in here. Um, in terms of my body, do I have any of the cells that I had like 15 years ago left or are they all just replaced. I'm pretty sure, don't quote me on this, but again, the heart is a very interesting part of our body because it's from my belief that there are certain um, cells that make up our heart, which we have our entire life. Wow. And that's why those cardiovascular diseases can be so severe yeah. because when we induce damage in that tissue, that's when we can have such um, catastrophic ev- mm, effects. Mm. Interesting. So what does studying cell death look like sort of on a day to day? I know you have quite a large Instagram following uh, where people get to see the day in the life of a lab sort of scientist, but what does that mean for you? I mean, are you working with mice? Are you scraping cells off people's skin? What does it mean? Yep, so most of my research um, has been what we call basic research, so a lot of like, stuff in the lab in dishes. So uh, with my monocytes, we, can, we use a, lots of cancer cell lines because they grow so quickly, so we can easily use them to perform many experiments 
science very quickly. Um, so we can, in the lab, we're in our lab coats doing lots of microscopy experiments mm. because something that our lab has come into with this different perspective of, well, what actually happens to the cell? What actually does it, does it look like? It's a lot of really great research that's come out of Melbourne showing like the molecular control which induces the cell death. But for many years now, people haven't really asked the question of, well, what do they look like and what effects does that have on the surrounding tissue and the environment and disease? So that's what our lab has really come into, into this game and looking at, well, how does that, how does that cell actually break apart to, to be cleared by the, the garbage trucks of the body known as phagocytes? And how, how is that regulated? What does it look like? And we're starting to use lots of um, microscopy techniques. And now in my postdoc, I'm looking at developing some more in vivo imaging. So in a mouse, can we image the cells within the mouse's tissue, within the bone marrow, within different organs, to see what they look like when they die? Mm. Presumably with some of the imaging techniques these days, you'd be able to see this, you know, stain some of these cells and see in real life as they're actually breaking up and, you know, being being distributed as as waste. Yes, exactly, and that's come, some of our key findings that came out in 2015 was the explosive way that cells mm. die. So for many years, they thought researchers thought that when a cell dies, it basically just falls apart and then right. it gets removed. But what our research is actually shown was when they die, it's an extremely regulated and complex process, and they go through this explosive death and shoot out all of these protrusions and then break apart in a very regulated way. Mm. So then, throughout my PhD, my studies now was thinking well why does that occur why would a dying cell put its last remaining energy into forming these complex protrusions sounds a bit like a star it does yeah Yeah. and the you you're mentioning t-cells is something that we don't have for a long time why is that it seems to me i mean these are the the real you know the brute force of the immune system why is it that they what's the advantage in them not lasting for more than a few days i guess it's just making sure that we have always have such a healthy population of cells within our body and we the cells intrinsic clock will induce them to die through apoptosis which is the regulated form of cell death to always make sure that we have that healthy population because we know that when cells get damaged they can go undergo a a pro-inflammatory form of cell death known as secondary necrosis or necrosis or necroptosis or pyroptosis and um, this is very damaging in our tissues so if we if the cells are induced to die earlier before they get to that pro-inflammatory state and are removed, we can avoid all of those disease onset that way. What, what sort of things can you do to prevent cell death in the body? Are there things we should be doing? I'm not talking about creams and stuff, but like, are there things that we do in our day-to-day lives that actually enhance the amount of cell death or, or cause it to be worse? Um, I guess not necessarily. Um, well, things obviously like you know exposure to the sun. Yeah. It's quite funny that a lot of my research um, we induce cell death by using UV radiation. <laughs> nice. So it's like a little microwave we have and chuck ourselves in there and kill them, and that's exactly what we do. Yeah. When we stand out in the sun for too long, we're exposed to that radiation. So yeah. I guess that is a very common one. Yeah, interesting. Now, uh, in terms of just back to Pine of Science, mm-hmm. uh, where do people find information and yeah, tickets so and so Yeah, so if you just Google Pine of Science, Melbourne, there will be all of the ticket information available. Um, tickets are still available. They're $6. Six bucks. Six bucks. Bargain. So you can come wow. along and you can um, buy tickets on the door as well. There are some events that are starting to get sold out, so I'd, I'd really recommend people to come along and have a check that out sooner rather than later and have a look at the different themes. As I said, there's a six yeah. different themes, so if you're interested in medicine or the environment or climate change or whatever it is, you can Google and figure out which which session might need. And how many pubs are there being involved? We ha- Melbourne is absolutely out of control this year. So in all of Australia, we have 
19 cities and 53 venues. And in Melbourne, we have nine venues this year. So oh. nine venues, three nights each, lots of events going on. And Lyndon's only going to be at one of them. Just one. Yes, I'm going to be at the Royal Melbourne on Burke Street on Wednesday night. There you <laughs> nice go. plug. <laughs> Georgia, thanks so much for coming in. And did you, you just graduated, you mentioned before? I did. It's been a big week. So, yeah, yeah on Friday, I finally walked across the stage as Dr. Atkin Smith. So that's been very exciting. Oh, congratulations. It's a great achievement. So, Thank and you. you're continuing now as a postdoc in the same lab. Yes, same lab, but also, as, I, as you mentioned, at WeHi as well. Yeah. Great. So, Dr. Georgia Atkin Smith is a cell biologist at the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science and also at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Thanks so much for chatting to us. Thank you so much. We're going to take a break for some station announcements, folks, and we'll be back in a moment with another member of the Pine of Science team. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 In the studio now is our second guest for today, Dr. David Farmer. He's a neurobiologist from the University of Melbourne and also part of the Pint of Science organising group and one of the MCs and speakers. Is there anything so you don't ads. do? I know. <laughs> I mean, and sometimes I read out people's bios, you know, it's got all this stuff and they're like this and this and this and I work here and here and here and I think, yeah, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> In your case, not so. Um, David, first of all, uh, tell us a bit about the talk you'll be giving at Pine of Science. I mean, what's the... T- I mean, it's humans to do with the brain, right? It is. Uh, so the part of the brain I study is the brainstem. So mm. this is the very, very old part of your brain at the base of your skull. And from here you do things like breathe and regulate your blood pressure and your heart rate, all the things that my friends at the Neuroscience Institute where I work who study things like memory and consciousness and all that fancy stuff would call housekeeping, but I think are very important because they keep you alive, they stop you from dying, they're why you're not dead. Yeah. Um, So this is my favourite part of the brain, I like to talk about it, so I'll give kind of an introduction to it, and then the thing about the brainstem is that we don't understand how it works, even these Mm. very, very basic functions that the brain is involved in regulating we don't know how they work because brains are hard to study and then so having introduced the brainstem and that problem that practical problem of studying brains i like to talk about some of the cool things that we do to get around those practical problems yeah so the brainstem when you say at the base of i mean is it into the neck or is it just mainly in the skull yeah it's kind of it's it's kind of in the middle of your of yeah. your middle back of your neck kind right. of going down it's it's oriented straight up and down and it's if you look at a picture of the brain and I show a picture of the brain in the show yep. and then kind of you look at all this beautiful structural variety the mm. cortex is mm. all folded and yeah, beautiful yeah. and the cerebellum looks like a cauliflower and then there's this floppy <laughs> you know homogen- <laughs> homogenous gross bit at the bottom and that's the brainstem yeah it, it's interesting to me you know from an evolutionary perspective that a piece that has such importance for controlling so much of our body yeah. is in an exposed location, like or a relatively exposed location compared to the rest of the skull. That's that's an interesting. I hadn't thought about it in exactly that way before. Um, I can't speak to that. I honestly don't know. Clearly, it's fine because it is where it is, and, and it's still fine around. enough. If it wasn't fine, then evolution would <laughs> yeah, have yeah, yeah. fixed it. So, um, so it must it, be fine. One of the questions I have around the brainstem is the complexity of it, because when we yeah. look at our cells relative to uh, you know, other mammals or other animals and yep. so forth, the complexity of our brain is quite unique, and there's yes. some aspects of it that are you know you know it's the reason why we can terrorize and destroy every other animal in the world. We are amazing, so bloody amazing. <laughs> you know, but the brainstem. It, 
Are we that more advanced in terms of the brainstem, or is it similar to what you'd find in many other vertebrates? That's a, a really great question. So I've done a limb- do my best. Oh yeah, I've, I've done a, <laughs> a wee bit of reading about this. The evolution of brains is really, really interesting, and I read a really interesting review about it that basically said that the the brain is. It's very hard to fundamentally change the brain when you evolve it. Mm. So the brain is like a browser with lots and lots of plugins that render <laughs> right. it almost unrecognizable, but the underlying program is the same. So yeah. let's say, for example, you're a vertebrate organism that is complicated enough to need to breathe, and you have a brain yep. structure in a brainstem-like part of your brain that you use to breathe, to inflate your lungs or to move your gills or whatever mm. it is. Mm. Now... If you evolve a new brain structure that makes you wriggle faster or better able to catch your prey or something amazing like shoot laser beams out of your eye, that's great. But if it breaks your ability to breathe, you will die when you are born and that amazing evolution will not be passed on. Mm. So what tends to happen is that you have these, if you have a fundamental brain structure, you build a new brain structure on top of it. So Mm. what tends to happen is that you have something fundamental and then you build on top of that and build on top of that and build on top of that. Right. And then when you look at the human brain, that's kind of what you see. You see the brain stem at the the bottom. And the more complicated parts of our brain are add-ons to simpler parts. That's right. That you would find in other animals. That's right. And then when when you look at the when you look at that that hierarchical so from the bottom to the top view mm. of the brain what you tend to see is that the bits at the top aren't consider you know my if i'm moving my arm the bit of my motor cortex at the top of my brain hierarchy that i'm using to decide to do that isn't concerned with moving the individual muscles it's sending yeah. a much more general command to move your arm in this conceptual sort of way and then the actual movement of all and the coordination gets relegated to some lower part of the brain that would have done that originally. Now, one of the things I find fascinating with some of the the parts of the body that you say the brainstem regulates is some of them come into that um, scenario where I can consciously regulate them. Yes. Or they can be unconsciously regulated. Yes. Breathing, blinking, so forth. Yes. Are good examples. How the hell is that the case? I mean, what's, what's going on there? Is it different parts of the brain doing different jobs there? Great question. Um, with regards to breathing, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. So uh, the muscles that we use to breathe, breathing works like this. You've got muscles in your chest, your diaphragm and your yep. chest muscles that you use to breathe. And in your brainstem, there's a cluster of cells whose job it is to generate a rhythm. So mm-hmm. they, they are networked together in such a way that the properties of those cells together is that they produce a rhythm. Right. And because these cells are hooked up to your respiratory muscles, the muscles in your chest that you use to breathe, you breathe with a rhythm because these yep. cells are active rhythmically, so your, your, your chest moves rhythmically and you breathe. Now, Which is good when you're asleep. It's very good when you're asleep or not paying attention, yeah, yeah, and yeah. everyone listening is now paying attention to their breathing. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> So slow, yeah, slow and steady, folks. You've hit the nail on the head. So it's what's really, really interesting to me is right now we're not using our breathing muscles to breathe. We are kind of, but we're overriding that fundamental mm. thing that we need to do, breathing. If you stop doing it for five minutes, you're dead. Yep. But you and I are not doing that exclusively at the moment, even though it's essential to our survival. We're using our respiratory, our breathing muscles to talk about breathing muscles, yeah. which is strange. Exactly how that's re- regulated, I don't know. I don't know much about talking, but one thing I do know about, about is coughing. And right. coughing is another sort of breathing behavior. I yeah. use the same muscles to, br- to cough as I use to breathe. And unfortunately, it can happen when you don't want it to happen. 
exactly as much as right. it can when you want it to happen. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, and that that's one of the reasons that's interesting. One of the reasons I love studying the brainstem is because when I inhale something that shouldn't be there, like a piece of Lego or a, a pen cap or you know, a bit of chicken parmigiana that I'm eating too fast, that inf- so that, that's in my windpipe. Information about what's in my windpipe gets sent to my brainstem. And with no control from me whatsoever, my brainstem makes a decision that actually, cough you know that, up. yeah, cough it up. You know that breathing thing that you've been doing since you mm. were born and you're going to do until the day you die? Stop doing that for a second. <laughs> Instead, you need to produce this different act pattern of activity yeah. in your breathing muscles to cough. And that is a subconscious decision. It's not one that you have any volition over, yeah. but it's a decision nonetheless. And how that decision is actually made in the brainstem is a really fundamental question of neuroscience that can hopefully be applied mm. all up the chain. That's fascinating stuff. Wow. So then getting back to point of science and thinking yep. about the brainstem as being the base, as the core bit of information we need, even though it's a homogenous blob at the bottom of uh, the beautiful brain. <laughs> but it's my homogenous It's your homogenous <laughs> blob. Who else is going to be speaking with you? So where are you going to be speaking? And, and Georgia was just telling us before there are different themes. What's the kind yep. of theme of, the, of your night at the pub? So my night, my night is called... It's not my night. It's, 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 it's Pint of Science's, our lovely nights. But the, the, <laughs> the night itself is called uh, Hungry for Knowledge. So it's me and another neuroscientist uh, from the Flory Institute, Dr. Anna Schroeder. And she is speaking, I believe, about schizophrenia, her research in schizophrenia. So... Uh, very much more focused on what I call the thinking bits of the brain um, that I can't really speak to, so I'm excited to hear what she has to say. We're speaking on Monday the 20th at the Exchange Hotel in Port Melbourne. That's tomorrow. 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 Wow. I should finish my slides. (laughs) I don't feel bad when you say finish. Linden hasn't even started hers. Oh, come on, mate. She's got to Wednesday. (laughs) Fantastic. And um, in in terms of the... You're also emceeing an event? What's that one? Yes, same uh, same night. I am emceeing a night called Old Threats and New Understandings, which is completely beyond my expertise, so I'm very excited about it. It's We've got uh, people speaking about seabirds and epigenetics of them, water pollution and nanoparticles, um, and then uh, a talk can, from an industry perspective, actually, about uh, technologies for keeping food fresher for longer and obviously yeah. reducing waste. Um, hugely diverse. I don't know anything about any of those things so I'm really excited to see what people have to say and did you get a say you're on the organising committee did you get a say in those kinds of things you were like I want to learn about that thing and that thing and that thing come to my local pub thank you very much honestly I I didn't really get a say but honestly the diversity of the talks is so huge and the people speaking are so interesting that you whatever you get is going to be there's there really aren't any week nights it's all really diverse and interesting so Sounds fantastic i'm excited david thanks so much for coming in and getting chatting to us i mean it's always good to talk to you you're great at explaining these things around the brain i think we could go on for i i, I got a, i got about 50 more questions <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll throw at you in the green room after the show lovely but um folks get along to uh david's uh, presentation if you can um good to see you again and um good luck thank you everyone cheers dr david farmer is a neurobiologist at the university of melbourne we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back with our final pint of scientist is that a term i think a pointer i don't know what we'll call it um who is going to be talking about uh, well actually i'm not going to tell you i'll leave it as a surprise we'll be back in just a moment folks you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 fm in melbourne australia 
Uh, welcome back, everybody. We have our third guest in the studio. Dr. Jen Pishneri is a data scientist. Well, she was a data science at Swin, a scientist at Swinburne University of Technology. She moved on to the Murdoch Children's Research Institute as part of the Gen V program. But we're going to be talking to her today about the work she did at Swinburne. Welcome back to the studio, Jen. We had you in November, apparently. Yes, we. Yes, I was here. Really nice to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you. Now, yeah. today, though, we're going to talk about a fun topic, which is yes. galaxies and dark matter. We're still looking for dark matter, aren't we? We still are. It's really hard to see. Every test seems to come up negative. It's almost like you can only see it through gravity and not with photons. That's pretty cool, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So give us a rundown first. I think we've talked about this a lot on the show, but when we look at galaxies, what's the problem? Like, why do we need dark matter? Well... We can see galaxies. You know, when we have telescopes, you only see photons. Mm -hmm. Um, But galaxies aren't static. Galaxies move. You know, how the Earth orbits around the sun, galaxies move. And when we look at how galaxies move in the universe, we can't really explain it only with the matter we see. Mm-hmm. We can. There's this object called the bullet cluster. If anyone wants to see a really amazing picture, it's these two massive clusters of galaxies. So this is like cities of galaxies colliding. And when we try to simulate that in a computer, we can't unless we include dark matter. Okay. So dark matter can't see it, can't touch it, but we know it's there. We can't explain how the universe looks without it, but you can't see it with a telescope. Mm. It doesn't radiate energy in the same way normal matter does. Mm. So uh, an immediate question I would have is when we look at probes that we've sent out in our own solar system, say Mm -hmm. say the Voyager 1 and 2 probes, and we look at their trajectories, Mm -hmm. they're completely dealt with nicely by normal general relativity calculations with no dark matter in the mix. Correct. Why why is that the case around our sun and yet, you know, we're looking for dark matter everywhere else? Right. So that's just a question of scales. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, I'm from New York. Flying from New York to Melbourne is a really large distance. Mm -hmm. Um, For us to think about um, a probe as far out as Voyager, astronomical scales. But when Mm -hmm. we're talking about dark matter and galaxies, we're thinking about scales that are literally astronomical. These are scales... We use... Astronomers like really weird units. Mm. We use things like kiloparsecs and megaparsecs. But when you think about the scale of a galaxy, you know, light takes about eight minutes to get from the sun to earth yep. light will take probably three thousand years to get from the center of the galaxy to us mm. so these are orders of magnitude different scales and dark matter is pretty under dense and so you need a large volume to get a lot of dark matter right so on scales like the voyager probe there just isn't enough dark matter to influence the orbit but on scales like that of the milky way there's a huge amount of dark matter and i suppose we have a bit of a misconception when we look at a galaxy and it, it all glows and so forth yeah. that it's filled with a lot of matter but actually that's not the case is it right. puts out a lot of light but out most of it's empty space most of it is empty space i mean most of you is empty space too yeah i've actually. been told that before <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so in that sense, you're not looking to add that much to the mix no. in terms of dark matter. No, and it really is a matter of weighing the universe. And if you're only weighing the universe on the scale of the solar system, dark matter is a small percentage. Mm. But when you're weighing the universe on the scale of the size of the universe, it's, you know... It's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. yes. Mm. So here's a question that 
might be a bad question, but the recent black hole photo, has that given us much more of an insight into dark matter or is it a completely different field? Um, I would go with super, super cool, completely different. Mm -hmm. I think that the connection I would make is the advancement of technology that is required to take a picture like that because that's a picture, you know, But it's not a picture like you have on your cell phone. It took a massive amount of effort for a team of people. And I think three or four telescopes across the Earth Mm. to just get triangulate on this one tiny, tiny space. Mm. And... It, the resolution of that photo is like nothing you can ever imagine. And it's also really exciting. Yeah, like, it's cool to take that first photo. Yeah. There's been so many artist impressions over the years, and it actually kind of looks a bit like them. Yeah, know, I, mean, cool. I, I think that it's, it's so impressive the amount of human effort that goes into mm. it. Um, it's definitely something I want to print out and put yeah, on my Yeah, phone. that's cool. Especially that larger picture of it. You know, not the, the zoomed in one is one thing, but when you zoom yeah. out of it and you look at that larger image that they, they published, it looks yeah. fantastic. Like, it's just gorgeous with yeah. that really incredible black spot. Yeah, it's you know, the, the shadow of the black hole. Yeah, yeah. Would that be a super black? Oh yeah, very Spot, much. So. Maybe yeah, yeah. talking yeah, about that yeah. at the it's top whole, of the show. It's a whole different game. Mm. So um, it's interesting to me. Like, there's such a, a focus on being able to find dark matter, but I mean, I keep thinking back to the fact that we're still working on finding gravity. You know, like <laughs> I mean, people forget this, but people with gravity, yeah, it's done and dusted. But actually, no, it's no. not. We we haven't determined what particle actually yields no. gravity. No, and that's always it's always funny because I've I've taught undergraduate classes and mm. I've taught physics lectures, and you go through the fundamental laws of physics and you talk about electromagnetism and the strong force and the weak yep. force and the strong force is super strange. Yeah. You take these two particles yep. and you pull them apart and out pops another particle. Yeah. and yeah. to write down the math for that is not something I could do. And yeah. I have but a it's age. doable. It's yeah. doable, but then you get to gravity and you're like, oh. Yeah, I, like, something's going on. Something's going on, <laughs> and we can write down an equation, but we don't know why. Yeah, yeah, it's really tough. And I think, uh, in many senses, you know, the dark matter scenario is a similar story. Like, you see the effects, you see the gravitational effects, and that's really clear, yep. but you don't see everything else. Now, in terms of your talk for Pine of Science, yes. give us the details of when that will be and where. Presumably you're going to answer all these questions in 15 minutes with a beer oh, in your yeah, hand, right? Totally. <laughs> yeah. totally. Yeah. Anything you've ever wanted to know about the universe, um, I'm in the atoms to galaxies category so anything you want to know <laughs> totally cover that um so i will be talking wednesday night at the exchange which is in port melbourne mm. um and the title of my talk is where do galaxies live cool um you can go online to pintofscience.com.au for six bucks come in um i will be speaking look for it the session is called the brightest black cool yeah. So people will be um, making a choice between Dr. Linden and yourself. Yeah, oh, staying on the tough. Earth or going up into space. Yeah. I can just I can just see Linden shouting free beers and stuff. <laughs> <to> get, <that. laughs> get the clientele across. Uh, look, it, it sounds it, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, um, the, all, all of that's really cool. And I like the fact you're now moving into a new area and using those statistical and mathematical yeah. capabilities at MCRI for the Gen V project, which yeah. is a big genetics project. People are looking at across Victoria. Every Victorian being sequenced, I think, yes. eventually. So yeah. it's every uh, Victorian child, child born between 2020 and 2021, um, and we'll have we'll be um, following this cohort, this group mm. of children forever, forever, hopefully, yeah. because we have there's the epidemic, there's the childhood yeah. epidemics we're facing now, like Pretty diabetes, yeah. 
And you really just need the huge data set to get to the answers to these really hard questions. it's not galactic, but it's a big set, so it should be fun. Um, Jen, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us again, and good luck with the Pioneer Science event. Hope it goes well. Hope you get a big crowd. Hope you get some of Lyndon's crowd. Not all of them, (laughs) but some of them. Um, Have fun, and uh, yeah, great chatting to you. All right, thank you very much. Dr. Jen Pichoneri is uh, now at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute on the Gen V Project, but was formerly a data scientist at the Swinburne University of Technology. Dr. Lyndon, great to see you. Good to see you too, Dr. Jen. I'm off now to finish my talk for Wednesday night. now, yeah, before the show started, it was started. <laughs> I love the progress you made while we've been on there. I'm inspired. There you are. Uh, Dr. Lauren, you can go out and stand near some people with your black top yeah, on and make much. them feel brighter. Well, I'm just thinking I'm going to have to plan my whole week of which talks I'm going to go to. It's going to be a busy one. You're very but, cool. Uh, yep. looking forward Good to, to see you. Liz, we've been doing our Twitter feed. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to all of you for listening to Einstein and Gogo once again, and we will chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.